Psalm 16. Would you follow, please, as I read? Psalm number 16, we'll read the entire psalm. Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, Thou art my Lord. My goodness extendeth not to thee, but to the saints who are in the earth, and to the excellent in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another god. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer, nor take up their names into my lips. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My reins also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life, in thy presence is fullness of joy, at thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Since the first of this year, for you who have perhaps might be new here this morning, we have been doing a study of the life of David. Uh, someone asked me, well, are you going to interrupt your series for Easter? And me being the slave to culture that I am said, of course not. I'm going right on with a study of David. However, if you want to talk about the resurrection of Christ, we really couldn't be in a better place to do it than where we are in the Old Testament, in the life of David, and certainly looking at one of the Psalms of David here, Psalm number 16. I want to talk for a moment about a type. A type is a theological term that means an illustration or an example that is here present, but it speaks of something yet future. In other words, what is called in theology a type is that which foreshadows something that is to come. Jonathan Edwards, and I esteem him highly, I believe he's the greatest mind America has ever produced, lived in the mid-1700s. He points out in his writings that almost everything in the Old Testament, almost every person from Adam to the time of Christ, was a type. In other words, it was representative, it was illustrative of some gospel truth. Let, let me quote here. Edward says, persons were typical persons. Their actions were typical actions. The cities were typical cities. The nation of the Jews and other nations were typical nations. The land was a typical land. God's providences towards them were typical providences. Their worship was typical worship. The houses were typical houses. Their magistrates were typical magistrates. Their clothes were typical clothes. And indeed, the world was a typical world. 
In other words, everything about the people of God in the Old Testament time had a meaning to them, but that's not where it stopped. It also had a meaning to us. Everything down to the land in which they dwelt, even down to the clothes that they wore on their backs. They were illustrated of gospel principles and gospel truths. And if that was true in general of that Old Testament age, how much more so when we come to one of the principal figures of the Old Testament, namely King David. His whole life, as we have noted already in our study, was sort of a a picture of the life of his greater son, the Messiah, who would come upon the scene. We have already noted that, indeed, he was anointed to be the next king of Israel. But before he assumed the throne, what happened to him? Why, he was rejected. He was run off. He lived in hiding and on the run for a number of years. And we can see in that that here is a picture of Christ, that indeed Christ is the anointed one, the very meaning of the word Christ, the meaning of the word Messiah. But before he will reign on that throne, he will first be rejected of his people. First he will be humiliated, let down to the depths, before he will be exalted to the throne. You see how David's life pictures that in a way. And so did his kingdom picture that. Of the coming Christ. In fact, you remember the angel that spoke to Mary said that it would be upon the throne of David that her son, Jesus, was to reign. Of his kingdom there shall be no end. He will assume the kingdom of his father, David. And not only does David's experience parallel that of Christ, but also David's words. The utterances of David, and perhaps we have more of those utterances than any personage out of the Old Testament. For not only do we have the historical description of David's life, we have insight into the heart and the mind of David for the majority of the book of Psalms that we have in our Bibles this morning was penned by King David. These are the meditations of his heart, the expression of his thanksgiving and praise towards his God. God, And yet, in the midst of those utterances, we'll see that often David is not just speaking of himself, of the things he personally is experiencing, but his utterances and his meditations are prophetic in nature. And it should not then surprise us that when we turn to the pages of the New Testament, that oftentimes it is the very words of David that are coming straight out of the mouth of Jesus of Nazareth. Let me give you an example of some of the things that happened to David, or at least one. Christ, you know, had a disciple that betrayed him. His name was Judas. David had someone betray him. His name was Ahithophel. Ahithophel was one of his trusted counselors, one of his advisors. And when Absalom, David's son, turned against his father, turned against David, and raised an army, and then marched on Jerusalem to destroy his own father, Ahithophel, David's trusted counselor, defected over to Absalom's side. Now this was a shock and a blow to David. And I want you to look at what he says here in Psalm 41. Turn over to Psalm 41 just a moment. Psalm 41 in verse 9. Now these are David's words. Psalm 41 in verse 9. Yea, 
mine own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, who did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. My friend, the one I trusted, the one who ate at my table, he has turned against me. He has lifted up his heel against me. And you would say, okay, I can see that in David's case, how he would feel that way towards Ahithophel, and perhaps towards others as well that turned against him at that time in his life. But may I remind you that over in John, the 13th chapter, on the night of the Last Supper, that as our Lord has just washed all the disciples' feet, he says, you're all clean now, but not all of you. There's one of you here, and John puts a note. This is he's speaking of Jesus. Have y'all ever seen a baby cry before? <laughs> let's all, you know, let's get a look. And then, okay, back to business. Is this no more important? David has uttered, my own friend has lifted his heel against me. And now John records that the night of our Lord's betrayal, when he washes Judas' feet, not all of you are clean. I know whom I have chosen. For the Scripture saith, mine own familiar friend hath lifted up his heel against me. He utters the very words of David and says, David may have been talking about his situation in the short run. But no, in the long run, David was speaking with the voice of a prophet, speaking of what would happen in events that would occur in the life of Jesus, the Messiah. So David, as Peter reminds us on the day of Pentecost, wasn't just king. Oh, he was that. But David was also a prophet. And we find that not only were the events in his life prophetic of a coming Messiah, but also the words that he uttered were prophetic in that they spoke of the coming one, his greater son. And in that light, I want us to examine the text, Psalm 16, before us this morning. For you see, in this psalm, David in general is expressing the benefits and the blessings that come to one who puts his trust in God, as opposed to lying divinities, false gods, idols. He, that's the theme, really, of the first four verses or so. But starting in verse 5, he also begins to rejoice in another great blessing that the saints enjoy, and it is the blessing of their inheritance. What's going to come to them in the future? Now, let me remind you, we've also talked already about how the events in the Old Testament typified or foreshadowed things that would happen to us. What happened to Israel was like that. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that the things that happened to them were examples to us. Israel as a nation was redeemed out of captivity, out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. You and I are redeemed out of a slavery, but it's not to Egyptians. It's not to some physical master. It is out of the captivity of sin. They wandered in the wilderness as pilgrims in a land that was not truly theirs. You and I, that's example of our life as Christians. We are pilgrims in this life. We're just passing through. 
Abraham and others confessed that was their lifestyle, and so is it to be the lifestyle of believers in this age. But Israel also had a land that they were looking for. They had something up ahead. It was called Canaan, the promised land. And time after time in the Old Testament, it is spoken of as their inheritance. It's the land that God said, I'm going to give you this land. And you remember as they went in and they conquered that land, that there came a time that God gave them their allotted inheritance by lot. You'll find a description of the boundaries of all the tribes of Israel. Tribe of Judah, you'll have this section. It was down there where Jerusalem was. Tribe of Benjamin, you'll be next door over here, and here's the boundary lines. Tribe of Dan, you'll have this swath from Judah all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. And the other tribes, one after another, were given their allotment, the portion of land that was to be given to them, their inheritance. Well, David is rejoicing in the fact that we, as the saints of God, have an inheritance waiting on us. That land, Canaan, was illustrative, typical of another inheritance. Not one that would pass away, not a piece of dirt over in Canaan or Palestine. But it spoke of something else, of a land that we call heaven. Much of our music, in a poetic way, speaks of it in that light. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye. To Canaan's fair and happy land, where my possessions lie. You see, we're just pilgrims and strangers. We don't really own anything. I know you own it instead of me, but you don't really own it. Not absolutely. You just have it for a little while. Everything you've got that you call yours, you're either going to lose or leave. If it lasts, it'll be somebody else's eventually. If it lasts, if the worms don't eat it up, if it doesn't rust and decay, if the thief doesn't break in and steal it, if you can keep it till you die, then you're going to leave it. The Christian says, no, my possessions are over yonder, on the other side of Jordan, on the other side of death, on the other side over there. That's my inheritance. And so David, in an Old Testament saint's body, (laughs) is basically rejoicing in a New Testament truth here. Look at how he describes this in verse 5. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. In other words, I get mine from God. He's the one who takes care of me in this inheritance. Thou maintainest my lot. The lines, the lines here are the property lines. Lines, not lions, lines. An old Texan like I am can't hardly say that in one syllable. The lines of my property The allotted line, the lot that has come to me, my boundary lines, they have fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. I see this allotment that God has for me as my inheritance, and it's a good one. Oh, I like the way that land lays. You ever gone out and bought a piece of land or looked at a piece of land? You know, oh, my dad, see, was a farmer, cotton farmer. And, uh, to me, the land that my dad purchased was the most unscenic property that you can possibly find in the whole state of Texas. But for a cotton farmer, the theory was as flat as it could be, as straight and flat as no obstacles, no trees, no gullies, nothing out there in the way to interfere with the plow. 
and as far off the highway as he could get it. Now, that was the theory, that that's the best land, the best cotton is going to be. You see, for a cotton farmer, that's what he's looking for. Now, if you and I want to build a nice little house up on the hill, I mean, it's the flat you can put a marble out there and it wouldn't know which way to roll. It's not exactly what you and I look for when we look for scenic property, you know, with a character. But what David is saying is, oh, I like the way my inheritance looks. I like the way the boundary lines fell. And then he goes on and speaks of this blessing of having God there, that he shall not be moved. In other words, he will not lose his inheritance. He will not be driven off from this. He will not be moved because God has given it to him. And then in verse 9, and here's where I really want to point your attention this morning. He speaks of this inheritance in two senses. In the first part of verse 9, he says, Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. In other words, I delight after the inward man of what God has done and is doing for me. But then, and the important point this morning, is that he goes on in verse 9 to say, My flesh shall rest in hope. In the first part of verse 9, he talks about the inward man, the glory and the delights that come to what we would call our soul, that immaterial part of us. In other words, we rejoice this morning in the salvation of our souls if we are Christians. But David doesn't end there. He says, and I also, my flesh shall rest in hope. My flesh, meaning my body. My body has a prospect of something that's ahead. Do you realize that it is not just God's purpose to save your soul? That's what David is saying. There is something that God is going to do for my body. That my flesh, my body, shall rest in hope. Now, I have to define the word hope here. You know, those who grew up back in the days I did, we're familiar with the idea of just wishing and hoping. That dates some of you, by the way. You can remember Dusty Springfield singing that song. But that's sort of the way we think of hope. You know, I just hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. I wish. But the Bible word hope and the way it's used in Scripture is a much, much stronger term than that. Perhaps the best word in our vocabulary to really get across the idea of hope is the word expectation. A strong expectation. Hope and faith really are the same operation. Both of them believe and cleave and trust in the Word of God. Okay, both faith and hope. The only difference is this. Faith respects something that's present. Hope respects God's promise of something that's yet future, that's not present. For instance, we're justified by faith, not hope. Justification is a present blessing that we enjoy. But heaven is our blessed hope. You see what I'm saying? It's the same thing as faith, except in its object is future, whereas faith's object is present and at hand for the moment. What David is saying is, you have given my flesh reason for a good expectation ahead. And how is that? On what basis, on what grounds, David, can you say that? Look at verse 10. 
For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. The reason that I can say my flesh shall rest in hope is that you will not leave my soul in hell. Hell here not being the word we're familiar with in the New Testament. It's the Hebrew word sheol, which usually signified the grave or the, the abode of the dead. It's not talking about the place of eternal torment, but the grave. You'll not leave me in the grave. And you will not suffer or allow your Holy One to rot. The word corruption is a uh, polite term for decay, rottenness. You will not abandon me to the grave, and you will not allow your Holy One to decay and to rot. Now, who do you suppose David is talking about? Who is this Holy One? That will not be left in the grave and that will not be allowed to decay and rot. Who's he talking about? Well, we turn now to the book of Acts, chapter 2. It's a thousand years now after David has penned Psalm 16. It is the day of Pentecost. Christ has been raised from the dead. He has ascended to the throne and now Peter is going to explain to the multitude this day what's going on. He's told them, no, we're not drunk, as you suppose. Something else is happening. The Spirit of God has fallen on his people. And for the first time, at least the first time that we have recorded in Scripture, for the first time, the apostles bear witness of a resurrected Christ publicly. Well, they've talked about it among themselves. They have seen the resurrected Christ. But now, for the first time, they stand up before a crowd of unbelievers and say, Jesus has been raised from the dead. Look at verse 24. Acts 2 and verse 24. We're breaking right into the middle of Peter's sermon here. Whom, that's speaking of Jesus of Nazareth, back in verse 22, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden by it. Now listen to this. For David. Who? Oh, dead David. A thousand years dead. For David speaketh concerning him. I foresaw the Lord always before my face. For he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Heard those words before? Well, yeah. You may not remember them, but that's the text we just read a little earlier this morning in Psalm 16. He's quoting right from the text we read in the Psalms. Therefore, goes on David, verse 26, still quoting, Therefore did my heart rejoice, my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also shall rest in hope. There's that text we just read. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. In other words, Peter is simply quoting from David a thousand years earlier, and saying, now listen to this. And then in verse 29, he sets a problem before them. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried 
and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Peter could actually point them to the sepulcher of David. No doubt he was his tomb, his marker, as we would say, was one of those whitened sepulchers. You know, I'm sure in the springtime when the festivities were to begin, the Pharisees and others would join in this occasion of whitening the, the tombs. And no doubt his was one of the honor tombs, but it was a well, it's sort of like saying, well, we know where Grant is buried. We know where these people are. We, we know where their grave is. What Peter is saying is, look, let me talk candidly with you for a moment. David is dead. He's rotted. Long ago his body decayed. Earth to earth. Ashes to ashes. The worms. What does the old Puritans say? We are, we are flesh. We shall be worms meat. Humbling thought. Long ago, the worms ate old David. In other words, do you see Peter's point? Who, when David utters these words, that you will not allow your Holy One to rot or to decay, who was he talking about? He could not have been talking about himself, for there he is, over there in the grave, or rotted away. He must have been talking about someone else. And guess who? <laughs> The Messiah himself. He was not talking of himself. But he was pointed, pointing out that his greater son would not be left in the grave. And that he would be raised incorruptible. That's a fancy way of saying non-rotting, non-decaying. May I point out to you something here that I think perhaps it's one of those things that we all, we assume everybody knows, but perhaps you don't, is that that Christ's soul arose from the grave. It was the body of Christ that came out of that too. You know, there are many today who would say, oh yes, I believe in the resurrection of Christ. You know, I believe that after his death, his disciples resurrected his teachings. And so in that sense, I believe in the resurrection of Christ. Hogwash. What the apostles are bearing witness to is the fact that when they went to that tomb, the body wasn't there. Now, you know, rumor went around that somebody stole him. It's interesting that if the Jews stole him, why in the world didn't they just produce his body? You put to rest this whole thing called Christianity if you can just come up with Jesus' body. You can prove the apostles are lying. That's all you got to do. If they had had it, they would have produced it. You say, well, maybe the disciples stole it. Why? The whole language of the New Testament is that they're not expecting a resurrection. It's the last thing they're looking for, even though they've been foretold that's what's going to happen. They're not expecting it. And why? Tell me why would men, one by one, lay down their lives later on, for what they know is an out-and-out lie. You know human nature. I know human nature. Sooner or later, some guy's going to say, wait a minute. If it's coming down to me or this, I'll save my neck. I'll fess up. We stole his body. Why is it that one after one of the apostles died as a martyr 
died with their own blood, testifying to the truth of their testimony. John tells us on the resurrection morning that he and Peter, you remember, after the women came and got them and told them that he was gone, they went down there to the tomb, and John got there first, but he was a little hesitant to go in. I suppose, you know, you come to an open tomb, and I'd sort of be just like him. I wouldn't go just rushing right into that thing. Who knows what's in there? You know, there's strange stuff in graves and tombs, you know. I don't want to go in there. But Peter, characteristic of Peter, comes flying right past him, just dives into the tomb, you know. And after Peter goes in, so does John. And John describes the scene, that there are the grave clothes lying there, and the napkin that was rolled about his head, but there's no body. Now, we might disagree on what John is actually saying to us there, but whatever it was, John said, I saw it and I believed. When I saw that sight, some have speculated that they saw the grave clothes still wound like a cocoon. That's the word in the, the napkin that was about his head, still rolled is the literal meaning of that Greek word, still rolled together. It's just like it was, except there's nobody there. I remind you that John has just told us that as they wrapped the body of Jesus after his crucifixion, they applied a hundred pounds of incense, spikener, to that body. Now, their pound was about ten ounces. That'd be about between sixty and seventy pounds of our stuff. But that's a lot of stuff. That is a lot of perfuming and embalming stuff. That's a lot of stuff. Where did all that stuff go? And what were the grave robbers after? If I was going to rob a body, I was going to rob a grave and take the body, would I take the grave clothes off? Why? In other words, everything John saw there as he went into that tomb, though he wasn't expecting it, confirmed him in the opinion, yes, he used to be here. He's not here anymore. His body is gone. And then the evening, Luke tells us, of the resurrection day, Jesus appeared in a closed room. I mean, let me tell you, somebody just appeared right here in the middle of this room without coming in a door or a window. What's my first impression? What's your first impression? This is a ghost. <laughs> this is real. That's exactly the disciples' impression there at the end of Luke. They said, this is a spirit, a phantom in the Greek. A phantom spirit has appeared here. Jesus says, here, handle me. Touch me. A spirit hath not flesh and bones, as you see me have. And then to cap it all off, he says, do you have anything to eat? And he sat down and ate with them. Do you get the idea that what the apostolic witness is? is that this is not some spiritual or psychological resurrection of Christ. They are testifying that he came bodily out of that tomb. And the scripture tells us that he's the first fruits, and then all will come in their order. I want, you might say, well, preacher, so what? What's the importance of all of that? It comes back to God's purpose for man, how he made us. We've spoken of this in our Sunday school hour in the last few weeks, and on the chance of boring them to tears once again, I repeat it, that God made you and I a compounded creature. And I mean by that that we are components. You know, today, computers or TVs, 
they don't ever fix anything anymore. If a transistor goes bad or a chip goes bad, they just take the board out and throw it away. It's just components that you plug them all together. Well, we have two components that have been plugged together, united, that makes you and me man. We have to us a spiritual component, what we call the soul. It is that immaterial part of us. On the other hand, we have a material part of us, a fleshly component, a physical component that we call body. That's how God made man. He formed man's body of the dust of the earth and then breathed the spirit of life and man became a living soul. In other words, God didn't make you and I as angels. Angels have no physical body. They're spiritual beings, pure spiritual beings. You and I, we have two components to our makeup. And what that means is, is that we are uniquely fitted for two things. Because we have an immaterial, a soulish side to our makeup, and I trust that you know that you are made that way. I, I certainly am conscious of the fact that my body is not the real me. I trust you are too. If you're not, let's get together and talk about it. We might need to get you some help. But, you know, you're conscious of the fact that what you're seeing here, that there's a me living in here. And yet this body, when I hurt my finger, I say I hurt myself. I'm intimately connected to my body. But because God has made me this way, I can commune with Him. I can commune with God who is spirit. Because I have an aspect of my makeup that's spiritual. My dog can't do that. I don't know about your dog, but my dog doesn't get out in the backyard and build him a little altar and offer sacrifices. Bow down and pray. But man, wherever you find him on this planet, no, no matter how primitive his culture, he has a spiritual component to his makeup and he gives evidence of that. He worships something greater than himself. But God made us also with this physical component. You see, in such a way that God has created this huge, vast physical universe, and he has fitted you and I to enjoy that universe. We have a physical side. I don't know if the angels really enjoy the sights and sounds and smells and tastes of this world, but I sure do. Because God gave me a physical component to me that is able to relate to and commune with this physical universe round about us. He made us this way. And what we call death, I know we struggle with a medical definition of death. When is it that the person actually dies? But theologically, we can give an answer. The person dies when those components become dissolved, disconnected. When the soul is no longer attached to the body. That, in that man dies. Now, you might say, oh, yes, Brother Mark, but the Spirit goes on living. I certainly agree. And Paul said that if I'm put to death, and if my soul is separated from my body, I go into the presence of the Lord, and that's a blessed prospect, I admit. 
But my friend, our ideas about people's, uh, the spirit after death is more Grecian than Christian. We have allowed ourselves to be influenced more by the Greeks and their ideas. See, they didn't have much use for the body. They thought of heaven as a place where these disembodied spirits went. Elysian fields, so forth. This place where these spirits, these souls, would have this paradise. That's not a biblical conception. And we sometimes fall into that trap when we go down, you know, to Uncle Harry's funeral. And we say, well, now, Uncle Harry's no longer here. That's just his body. That's true. And Uncle Harry, you know, if he's a Christian, he's gone on to be with the Lord. That's true. But sometimes unconsciously we give the idea that, well, he's gone to heaven. He's gone to the That's as good as it gets for Uncle Harry. That's not the teaching of Scripture. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 where he describes this body as a tent, as a tabernacle that we live in. He says our goal is not to be unclothed, untended. It is to be clothed upon with immortality. You see what Paul is saying? His goal was not to be a disembodied spirit floating around up here doing whatever disembodied spirits do. But his goal was to have this mortal flesh clothed upon with immortality. Or as he puts it elsewhere, this corruptible, this rotting, decaying body. Some of us are rotting a little faster than others. But if you live very long, you see the evidences, do you not, of decay, age, getting old. He says this corruptible flesh will put on incorruption in the resurrection. This mortal body will put on immortality. When will it happen? At the coming of Christ. The trumpet shall sound. The moment in the twinkling of an eye we shall all be changed, says Paul, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, non-rotting, non-decaying. The dead whose bodies went into that grave and rotted and decayed will come out of that grave and will come out of it in a form that is non-decaying, non-rotting, non-corruptible. I'm convinced for this reason my conception of heaven may vary a little from yours and may vary a little from my associates, but I believe there will be a physical component to heaven. I do not know why God made a universe that if we are anywhere near correct, is about 15 billion light years across. Some of the pictures from the Hubble Space Telescope saw about a month ago where they had focused just on an area of the universe. All they could see was just these tiny faint stars. That's all we had been able to see. Stars extremely dim. And they focused the Hubble Telescope on it, and as they magnified that view, what they thought were little tiny individual stars turned out to be gigantic galaxies, each containing millions of stars. In other words, of all the, some of the faint little stars are not individual stars, but instead other galaxies like the galaxy we call the Milky Way that we live in. Why? In other words, why? Why did God, isn't this a little bit of overkill? Why would God create a universe as vast as this? I mean, we have no prospect. Maybe one of these days we might get to Mars, but that's about it. 
Here we are on the third rock from the sun, on this little rock, this little piece of dust, going around this nondescript star called our sun, one of a million in our galaxy, which is one of billions out there in the universe. And we can't even get next door. Why could it be? I don't know. I'm not dogmatic. But could it be that one of these days we'll say with David, you know, I like the allotment God gave me. The lines have fallen in pleasant places. You see, he gave me those stars, those planets, those galaxies. I look over and see, uh, you know, doesn't Brother Steve's star look nice tonight? I want to go over there and visit him and uh, see what he's done on that planet. You know, he's putting a greenhouse in over there. Now, that's my conception. I know I may be far out to lunch, but I'll tell you this. I have not seen, neither hath ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. You gasp in amazement at what I'm describing to you. Paul says the reality will blow you away. Whatever you can conceive of, it will be infinitely more glorious, more wonderful. What God, when God, oh, when the kings of this earth wish to ordain their sons, and you know, really, as we say, put on the dog. I mean, look what the Queen of England did when her son, Prince Charles, got married. You talk about a show. You talk about a display of glory and lavishness. My friend, that won't be a drop in the bucket compared to that day when God Almighty, the Creator of this universe, glorifies His sons. And for that reason, hell... What we do know is hell is far more horrible. Jesus said, don't fear those who can destroy your body. Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Gehenna, the place where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. That place of everlasting torment and punishment. Paul tells us in the book of Acts again that God will raise both the just and the unjust. You ever thought about that? It's not just Christians that come out of the grave. It's lost men as well. There's going to be a resurrection of every man. The description of the judgment in Revelation 20 is that the dead gave up the sea, gave up the dead that were in hell. Hades, this place of the dead that we call Sheol a moment ago, gives up the dead that's in it. The dead, small and great, stand before God in judgment. It's not just the saved that are resurrected bodily, but the lost as well. Why would God resurrect lost men? Fear not him who can destroy the body, but fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The old Puritans used to put it like this, that the saved are raised from the grave and fitted with a body whereby they may enjoy the blessings of God forever and ever. 
and the lost will be raised from the dead and fitted with a body wherein to endure the punishment of God's wrath forever and ever. I know hell is not a popular subject. It's fallen on hard times. Some of the leading theologians, conservative men elsewhere, are now rejecting the traditional doctrine of hell. But my friend, I simply say this, if Christ was mistaken about hell, what's to say he's not mistaken about some other things? He taught more about hell than he did about heaven. What can we trust? It's, you see, it's a package deal. It stands or it falls altogether. I do say this. I don't want to go there. Whatever it is being described in Scripture, this place of torment, I don't want to be there. As they seem down south of us, oh Lord, I want to be in that number when the saints go marching in. I do believe I want to enter into that other kingdom. I want to live forever and ever under the blessing and the smile of my God. And I know of only one way to get in. For when the dead, small and great, stand before God, they are judged out of the books of their works. And if that were all that were to happen, they'd all go to hell. But another book is open. The Lamb's book of life. And everyone whose names were written in that book entered in to heaven, into eternal life. Oh, I think that says volumes to us right there. There is but one way to enter heaven. Let that offend the Jews. Let it offend the Muslims. Let it offend the Buddhists. I don't care. This is, after all, a stumbling stone, says Jesus. A rock of offense. Christ will offend men. He will offend them by the exclusiveness of his claims. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That offends. And he offends them by the mechanism, by the means. For in that day of judgment, he's not going to read Mark Webb's record and say, well, you know, Mark did some things over here I'm not too proud of. But, you know, by and large, he was a good old Bob, good old Joe. You know, he, I, I think he's got more good things going for him than these things. No. The soul that sinneth shall surely die. There's one hope for a sinner like me. And that's in the blood of one who took my place. And died a ransom, a satisfaction to the offended law of God that I had broken shed his own blood as a sacrifice for me. And now I can stand, having put my trust in him, I can stand with assurance saying, I shall one day be with him. And you say, how do you know, Brother Mark? How do you know that what he did on that cross was enough? How do you know it was sufficient? How do you know there's not something else? How, how do you know that when it's all said and done, that you're going to wind up perishing even though you put your trust in Christ. I know it because three days later, God raised him from the dead. 
God put his validation. You go into the store, you know, get the stamp to validate your parking ticket. God validated his claims when he raised him from that dead. Had he not come out of that tomb, then by all means we could sit here and say, well, you know, maybe you ought to trust Christ. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure that'll do the trick. I'm not sure that what he did was sufficient. After all, he bore our sins and we saw him die on that cross and then we saw him put in that tomb. Oh, my friend, the fact that three days later he arose is my proof that God has accepted what he did. And God has declared him to be his son and that he raised him from that dead. I'll end with one little verse. Oh, it's two. Back to Psalms. We were in 16. Look at Psalm 17. Here's what the saint's living for. Here's what he's looking at, looking forward to. In Psalm 17 and verse 14, David is uh, praying for deliverance. Deliverance from his enemies. For men of the world he calls them. Psalm 17 verse 14, For men who are your hand, O Lord, from men of the world who have their portion in this life, whose belly thou fillest with thy hidden treasures. They get theirs right now. That's what David's saying. From men of the world who have their portion, their inheritance, their allotment right now. Oh, my friend, never be envious of the Donald Trumps of this world. All the good things they're ever going to get, they're getting right now. Men of this world, they get theirs now. They are full of children and they leave the rest of their substance to their babes. They either lose it or leave it. As for me, says David, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. That's what I'm living for. That's what floats my boat, is there's coming a day when I will be raised from the dead, or if God will, I'm alive at the coming of Christ, I shall be changed, transformed from mortal to immortal, corruptible to incorruptible. But there is a day, if I go to the grave, that I will come out of that grave, and I'll be satisfied in that day, because in that day, I will be made in the likeness, the holiness of this God that I seek to serve. If that's your goal as a Christian this morning, oh, I can tell a big difference between a lost man and a saved man. The lost man just wants to be as good as he has to be. You know, what's your bottom It's sort of like dealing with the used car salesman. What's your bottom line? Just tell me, how good do I have to be? That's a lost man talking. The saved man says, how good can I be? Or in the words of McShane, from the last century, God, make me as holy as a saved sinner can be. That's the aspiration of the saved. They want to be not just good. They want to be perfect. David says, one day I'll be satisfied in that aspiration. God has put that desire in my heart. And the God who put it there will fulfill it. Because there's a day coming when I'll come out of that grave. And I will leave behind all the remnants of sin. I'll be satisfied when I awake. With thy likeness. When I am totally and totally conformed to the image of Christ Jesus my Lord. That conforming process according to Romans 8 is going on right now. 
but then it will be finished in that day of glory. Well, we'll stop. Does that give you enough to chew on today? Does it give you enough to rejoice and delight in? Oh, you may be going through some terrible things right now, Christian. But think about that day ahead when the glory that we know then will make this suffering that we endure now seem as nothing. Do you realize, Christian, that the only time you're ever going to get to suffer for your Lord is right now? The only testings and trials that you'll ever have to endure for the sake of Christ, the only losses that you'll ever suffer for Christ's sake are right now. I don't think when you get to glory, you're going to look back on this life and say, well, I wish I hadn't given up so much for Christ. You know, I could have had such a good life and I sacrificed. I doubt that will be. I don't even know people on their deathbed think in those terms. That will not be your regret. If there is any regret in heaven, surely it will be the fact that I suffered so little. That I toiled so lazily in the service of my Savior. May God help you today. And if you're lost, take to heart what you've heard. There is coming a day when you must give an account. Where will you hide? What will answer? Or as the Bible puts it, who shall be able to stand? I urge you, if you know not Christ, there is a Savior seated in glory. The man, not just a disembodied spirit, the man, Christ Jesus, sitting and reigning on the throne of God in glory. Go to Him. There's life in His hands. Bow to Him. Submit to your roof. Repent of your sins. Turn and humble yourself and lay hold of the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. And He promises to those who come, I'll receive them. I'll not cast them out. Are you thirsty for life? Then come and drink freely of the water of life. Let's pray. Thank you for what you've done, dear Father, through your Son, Jesus, for what you have accomplished through Him, that the curse that fell upon us in the garden will one day be removed. When all sin that so infects even the best of us today will be left behind when our delight will be to serve our God for the first time with an absolutely unsinning heart. For the first time with a perfect will, perfect motivations, without one ounce of selfishness in them.